Happy Thursday, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Apollo 13 Minute, where each and every day, Monday through Friday, we go over one of the greatest space history movies ever made, the 1995 Ron Howard-directed feature, Apollo 13. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm one of your other hosts. I'm Chris Henry of the EA Aviation Museum. I guess I'm the only other host. <laughs> yes, you're, you're, you're our only alternative. Except we do have a we do have a guest today. I'll let, let a familiar guest to most people who have listened to other podcasts that that I've been on. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. If our mystery guest, uh, please sign in. I, I I will indeed. My name is Brian Fees, and I am a, a space nerd, which I guess goes without saying on this podcast. But I'm also a uh, a cartoonist and graphic novelist. I've done a book called Mom's Cancer, another book more more on point for this podcast called Whatever Happened to the World of Tomorrow, and I'm working on a new graphic novel called A Fire Story. So I'm I'm here to talk uh, a little bit about about storytelling. I think today. Yeah, I hope so. This is. Uh... This is a particularly weird minute, so uh, it's it, helping helping us out with the storytelling uh, part would uh, would be a great assistance here. <laughs> we're getting into the mind of Marilyn Lovell. We'll, we'll talk a little bit more about her tomorrow, but we're, we start with uh, looking at a simulation. We're trying to figure out uh, how how the Apollo thirteen crew can make themselves as best as they can be, and they're working with their backups. So we've already yesterday we were going over the interactions between the backup crew and the prime crew, and then that's kind of normal space, but then the scene kind of fades out into a, a very abnormal. I mean, it, it not only does it look strange from you know, we, it, it doesn't seem very technically accurate, but it it's also the story seems to be told in a weird way that that doesn't relate to the rest of this movie as we're going to watch later. Yeah, I, I, it's it's a really interesting minute, and and the next minute as well. Uh, spoiler alert, which I'll also have some things to say about tomorrow. But uh, I, first of all, I just want to say that, and perhaps you covered some of this yesterday, that I really enjoyed just the interactions of the crew here with Mattingly and uh, Lovell, Lovell talking about the simulation because it tells us a lot about it. When Mattingly says, "I think we should work it again," and, and Jim just says, "Well, let's get it right," you know, to me this the. Uh, Lovell could have gone a lot of ways with this. He could have scolded Mattingly for not getting it right in the first place. He could have said, nah, it's good enough. Let's just go home. But, you know, Mattingly trusts Jim enough to admit that he's not perfect. And Jim repays that loyalty by simply saying, okay, we'll get better together. To me, that this is very early in the movie. It tells you how these guys relate to each other and how that and we know that how that's going to pay off later in the movie. I think it's a really neat subtle character moment that tells us a lot about these guys. And and then we cut to the second half of the minute which you just talked about. And and the way this is cut, it it's it's to fool us into thinking that we are watching the simulation that they're climbing into. And it's so it's really really it's unsettling just from the start because we think we're seeing the guys in the capsule going through their simulation, very routine that they started to do. And I, I think that's a, a neat little bit of um, misdirection. I really enjoy that. Yeah, I was I was getting a vibe from it too that it's like, did we miss something and they're actually already on the ship? Because what's what's happening here, and from what I was reading about how uh, Ron Howard directed the filming of this, you know, we, everybody knows about that that Apollo thirteen was filmed inside the vomit comet, and they were doing like very realistic use of uh, of weightlessness, but when when this particular scene was filmed, it was done more in the classic way where everybody holds up their arms and pretends they're kind of like floating around. So they're, it, it looks very pretend, which, you know, again, feeds into what you were saying about this is a simulation. So were they pretending about being weightless and stuff? 
but it's just it's very unnerving. I think that you don't feel very comfortable watching this. Yeah, I think the the camera angles are different than the rest of the movie and so forth. And and then you know we're watching and, and the master alarm goes off and and. To me, what happens next is is the key to the minute of this movie and sets up a lot of the movie that follows. Tom Hanks, uh, playing Jim Lovell, says, Hey, we have a problem. And this is pure 200-proof foreshadowing. Uh, you know, most people watching this movie will know that they're going to hear very similar words later on. And even if they don't know that history, that line of dialogue plants that seed in the audience's mind very early in the movie. It, it, the idea that if you hear that character say, we have a problem. You've got about 10 seconds before total disaster. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's a really neat bit of foreshadowing. And I'm going to talk a little bit uh, later on, I think, about um, the foreshadowing from Marilyn Lovell's point of view, too. But um, and, and, and then you talk about the, the zero-G. There's a real quick shot there where a bolt starts to float in the air. And for a second, at least I thought, and people who know anything about simulations think, wait, they couldn't simulate zero G, you know, I, I, except in the yeah. vomit comet. I've heard some people think NASA actually had anti-gravity chambers of, other than the vomit comet where you could, in an actual room where you could flip a switch and turn off gravity. So for me, this is an interesting moment in the film when you see that bolt just start to float off the console where the informed viewer realizes something very weird is going on. And a less informed viewer might not catch that point. Yeah, it is. It is very subtle. There's a lot of subtleties in this. One of the one of the things I notice in that second half of this minute is how everything is a close up. There is only the one, one or two establishing shots at the beginning of the minute where you see, you know, they're sitting in their chairs, but then everything else is you are six inches away from uh, Tom Hanks's nose, and you are, you know, it, one of the things about using a close up is it limits information. You don't have the big picture you have this tiny little piece and your brain has to kind of put together what's going on and all the information that we're getting is disaster 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 um so it just it increases your paranoia i think i remember when i saw this in the theater and uh you know we saw that uh in my head i was like wow they, that's it they're just dumping you right into the problem right away you know not realizing that this was a setup you know shot for something else but um and then obviously when in stuff started going really bad i'm like well that didn't happen <laughs> <laughs> so. right well yeah and then and, and the gauges start to shatter and all this and at, at that point i think even a viewer who didn't pick up on the floating bolt would think you know no simulation would ever blow up the controls like that so now we're all on the same page as viewers we're all thinking this is this is weird either some people might think ahead to, if they don't know, if they're not familiar with the Apollo 13 disaster, they might think they're watching the real disaster. Those who know how the disaster happened are saying, they, they, the whole panel didn't explode like that. That didn't happen. The door didn't blow out, you know. Um, so it's it's an interesting bit of playing here that works on a lot of different levels, I think, depending on who you are and what you bring to the movie. Yeah, and I was wondering how much of this was kind of copied, as, as you were saying earlier, Brian, about foreshadowing. Uh, Nicholas Meyer did a similar thing with the opening of uh, the second Star Trek movie, where, as uh, you know, we're expecting here, we have a problem uh, from, from coming from Jim Lovell. The first time we see Spock in uh, in Wrath of Khan movie is, uh, you know, Kirk asks him, aren't you dead? It's because it was like the rumor mill was, oh, they're going to kill off Spock. So he's like, oh, it was just a simulation. So this kind of... Is using that same expectation of the audience to uh, 
to to kind of you already lit that fuse so you don't have to it'll 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 get get you over it the first time so that the second time that you hit that it actually happens you'll be kind of doubly surprised because you thought you already lived through it in in this particular yeah. minute I'm so glad you brought up the Wrath of Khan because I thought of that and I thought it was just too deep a dive in the weeds for uh, to possibly, <laughs> no, not, what not who true. would possibly bring that up? But <laughs> I thought the exact same thing because that was it. And, and we're of an age that we were there when it came out. And remember the Spock rumors, the Spock is going to die rumors. And then exactly what you said, Kirk comes out and says, aren't you, aren't you dead? And then we all sit back and relax because we can enjoy the movie because obviously those rumors where somebody just saw that scene and misunderstood it was a simulation wow we can relax and and then they just kick you right in the teeth at the yeah. end of the movie it's a surprise again <laughs> it's heartbreaking by the way that, that whole series right there uh, yeah of, of his death is uh i can't watch those movies <laughs> i couldn't watch that one yeah i uh i know from a just for, just from a geeking point of view Every prop in this movie, when I'm watching all the the dials and gauges break, I'm like, I wanted one of those. (laughs) (laughs) Give me the props. I I know they're all just breaking apart and stuff like that, but I want one of those chairs. I want. (laughs) It's um, it's just a thing. Well, you know, and a lot of it, not necessarily the stuff that was broken, but a lot of the hardware that was in the uh, the sim, I should say, the set that is the Apollo 13 spacecraft was actual hardware recovered from the Apollo 13 spacecraft. When the capsules would fly different missions, they were gutted out usually a lot of times or or cannibalized out. Apollo 13 was on display in Paris, I believe, and then the spacecraft was returned to the United States after the movie, and because of the movie, they had gathered so many original pieces of the Apollo 13 capsule for the movie, the parts were then turned over to the restoration of the spacecraft. Um and reinstalled back into the original spacecraft. So uh, the Cosmosphere Museum in Kansas has it, but a lot of that original hardware was used on the set. And because oh. of the set, it is now in the spacecraft. Amazing. The, you know, it, it, it was really surprising to me when I found out getting into the museum biz about where, how exhibits and stuff get moved around. I, and the later Apollo missions that the, uh, the budgets were so constrained, they were reusing equipment. Um, which is why if you go to the uh, the U.S. Air Force Museum in uh, in Ohio and see Apollo 15, the, the hatch is closed. The reason that the hatch is closed is because there's nothing inside. The the, uh, the crew chairs were reused on Apollo 16. And so they're actually, if you want to see the inside of Apollo 15, you'll have to go to Huntsville, Alabama and look in uh, uh, Casper, the command module there for Apollo 16. And it's just all these bits and pieces just kept getting moved around because it was there was nothing in the budget to make you know extra equipment. Didn't these people know they were putting together museum artifacts? <laughs> yeah. What were they doing? Yeah, really, really poor planning there. <laughs> Show some respect, fellas. Come on. Yeah, always, always work something in the budget for uh, for backup props. It's <laughs> one of those things. Yeah, it is. Uh, even even in this fantasy world, I'm I'm always impressed by how. The, the realism, the, the the sense of it doesn't look like a set uh, that's uh, that's admirable about it. I mean, every you know, we uh, Brian, you and I grew up in in this age, and we saw we saw the uh, the, the hardware and the and the suits of the time, and these things look exactly like every every image you saw in Life magazine or or National. Oh, Geographic. they're fantastic! Uh, you know, I had a a poster of the Apollo Eleven. Uh, you know, command module panel 
hanging above my bed for five years when I was a kid, and and um, I, I memorized that thing. And it's just, um, it, it's watching this movie is just a wonderful flashback to me being a kid looking up at that poster, me being a kid watching these missions. Ron Howard just, I think, went to some extraordinary lengths to get this as right as he could within the bud, you know, within the limitations of of time and budget and so forth. Yeah, it just looks terrific, and it's it's amazing because uh, I've I've listened to the uh, the film commentary on their D- on the DVD and Ron Howard keeps saying I really wasn't into this that much and I didn't really know that much but the way this is set up it just feels so intense you have to be an extreme geek to understand where all these things are and how they interact so I, I just he had an impressive technical crew to lead him through uh, I was going to say I bet he had some wonderful people working for him who really did care and, yeah. and gave him the tools to work with yeah and it's a uh, it, it is it is just a beautiful a beautiful thing. And imagine trying to film in such an enclosed space. I mean, I know they have a, like a wild wall uh, over Fred Hayes's right 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 shoulder, but just that is a you've been inside of command modules and the 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 crampness of that space trying to film and get lights and and things and still be able to do things like say action must have been incredibly difficult to do. Yeah, it's probably something that they could only probably do in the last ten years with digital technology. You couldn't fit a film a film camera in there, I think. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's it's wonderful. Now, it, all that said, all all this right, you know, rightfully given praise is I know, and you probably know, folks who've watched this movie and and uh, will rip it apart because you know the bolt pattern on the command module wasn't the same <laughs> or wasn't right, and oh my God, they used Apollo, you know, uh, still from Apollo 14 instead of Apollo 13. There, those folks are out there, and, and bless their hearts, and we've got some of that in our bloodstream too. But um, you know, you, you, understanding how movies get made and the limitations they had to work with, I think they they approached it sincerely and earnestly and did about as good a job as anybody could have done. Yeah. And I think ultimately you have to say to yourself, did they tell the story? And definitely this, this whole, as a single opus, it really tells the story and really gives you the feel for the time and feel for the stakes and feel for the people involved. Yeah. Well, and talking about feel for the people involved, I mean, this, this minute focuses on, on Marilyn and we don't know that yet. We'll find out it's Marilyn waking up from a dream in the next minute. But, um, uh, I think that's something the movie Apollo 13 did well too, was, was, uh, not just tell the story of three heroes in a spaceship, but talk about all the people back home who loved them and helped them get home. And, and, uh, you know, that's, that's one thing the movie did so well. This minute is Marilyn's story. The next minute is, is, Marilyn's story and um, I think it really captured some feel of what the terror must have been like to be to to love one of these people when they sat on top of that rocket you know yeah and and being in a I mean you're in a basically a company town that everybody in the business is with you and you know you know if, if you're Marilyn Lovely you know people who have lost family members you know husbands and uh, to to this this uh, this goal, one of the stories that, although they use this story about imagining you know Jim being lost in space, one of Marilyn's uh, biggest worries during the mission, when after the uh, after the explosion, um, she thought back to um, when uh, Charlie Bassett and Elliot C died. They were right. during a, during the Gemini Nine mission. Uh, Elliot C and Charlie Bassett were uh, were assigned to Gemini Nine. And uh, they were flying with uh, uh, Gene Cernan and Tom Stafford in a follow-up T-38. They were flying in St. Louis. 
and came out of a low cloud deck a little too low and slammed into the McDonnell Douglas building where uh, the Gemini spacecraft were being manufactured. And uh, Charlie Bassett and Elliot C. were killed instantly. But uh, Elliot C. was in the same, that next nine group of astronauts with Jim Lovell. They, you know, they worked together for years on, on Project Gemini. And they actually both lived in the same neighborhood. They were, like, right down the block from each other. So when, when uh, Marilyn, Marilyn was home the day that, uh, the day that the crash happened, uh, she got a call from John Young and said, Mar- uh, Marilyn, you're, you're right down the block. Could you go over and see uh, the other Marilyn, Marilyn C., um, because uh, Elliot's been killed. And she goes, do you want me to tell her? And he goes, no, 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 just be there, and uh, we'll have somebody come over to tell her. And so Marilyn had just had a ba- Marilyn Lovell had just had a baby a couple of weeks before. She had a she had a, a maid a nurse in, and so she left the baby with the nurse, and walked down the street and had to basically just pretend for twenty minutes she was just dropping by her friend's house for a cup of coffee, and they they sat and chatted while Marilyn Lovell had to wait for the NASA folks to show up and deliver the bad news, and I you imagine. know the idea. That- yeah, I mean the idea that this was on, you know, this had to sit on your soul and this was this was your job in the uh, in the giant uh, organization chart of NASA. Your job was to comfort the widow who doesn't know she's a widow yet. So, you know, seeing this kind of stress, seeing a, a, a scary story like this, uh, you you can feel, you know, you feel it right in the it's like ice water through your heart about thinking this is this is what these people lived through every day that they were working in Project Gemini and Project Apollo. Yeah. Yeah, and it really hits for me uh, this minute, and, and particularly, God, your story is is that this this was a family enterprise. This was a family business, and and you know those men couldn't have done what they did without uh, without that life support system back home. I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I, there was later on. I mean, Marilyn and Jim Lovell had a, had a very strong marriage, but when you think about the uh, the divorce rate, it was incredible once. Once they started getting divorced, it was the stresses on the family was was incredible. I think it was something like seventy five or eighty percent of uh, of everybody through Group Five astronauts had divorced. So it's just you know the, the incredible pressure on the family within and without. I mean, just the internal struggle. Uh, you know, it's it's hard enough being a military military family, but then having this on top of it, you've got uh, the publicists and people on your front lawn uh, reporting on your every move and how you're feeling and things. So it's just you can you can imagine the stress, but I don't think you can ever experience the kind of stress that these people went through. Right, right. And Jim, if, am I wrong in remembering this? But the um, astronaut wives themselves are the ones that came up with that sort of network to be with the others. Is, is that? Am I remembering? Yeah, that right? yeah. I think they it, it had developed out of the from what I understood it was it had developed out of the test pilots group at Murak and uh, later well, when Murak t- turned it to Edwards. But that was that was their role that they were they were there not only for um, not only for you know being the widow calls, but also to be there when uh, you know if there, the mission was in trouble that they would be there as kind of a support team and you know getting the sandwiches and coffee and stuff like that where you're waiting through to find out word of how things were. Um, I, I, that happened with uh, Scott Carpenter's wife that you know when when Scott Carpenter was lost during uh, during his Mercury mission. Jenny Armstrong went through that with uh, with Neil and when Dave Scott and Neil were lost in uh, the South Pacific or the uh, South China Sea after uh, Gemini Eight had to come to a, a sudden end. So 
you know, it, it's, it, it was a good, it was, it was definitely a positive support system for all of them. Um, but being able to find somebody that had shared this rather unique experience, um, who, who else can you talk to except people that, you know, other people that had been through it. Uh, actually, uh, Brian, seg- segueing to something in a modern sense, you've, you've gone through a rather, uh, a rather tragic experience, which you're, you're chronicling now in, uh, in your new book that's coming out, um, where you're. Your home and and your neighbors around you were reduced to cinders. Yes, uh, yeah. I lost my fires. lost my home and my whole neighborhood really in the uh, California firestorms last October, and uh, uh, I, I I don't know I don't know if that gives me any particular insight into what a uh, a space family was going through in the '60s, but it's um it's a uniquely traumatic event, you know. Um, I don't know where, where where are you going with that, Jim? Well, I'm just yeah. Okay. Well, what, what, what I was wondering is, have in the you know in the inter, intervening months uh, since since this happened to you, have you found uh, a support network in your neighbors and talking about um, rebuilding? Have, in, yeah, yeah, huh? and it makes a big difference. Um, what I've what I've noticed is that. Uh, the people who seem to be doing best are the ones with that, with, with a support network, um, perhaps analogous to the Astronaut Wives Club, maybe. Uh, you know, my little neighborhood has, has, my little block has 10 houses in it. We all say we're coming back. We're all working together, uh, making plans. We're going to get together on the 4th of July. Uh, you know, we're, we're, um, we're helping each other out. There are other neighborhoods that have atomized and people are just scattering they're going they don't have any reason to stay so they're not staying and um you know that that makes a big difference yeah um i think that's true so it's got yeah it, i mean that that's that's where i was trying to link this up because yeah. it's like this is this is a in terms of stressful things in your life i would think that would be one of the most stressful things you've ever gone through i, I don't know anybody that's gone through as stressful a, a situation as yours. But I would think that being able to share that with others who have gone through a similar experience and y- y- in, in writing your, uh, uh, your comic for uh, illustrating what happened to you and how it went, you, you seem to have touched a, uh, a responsive chord with a lot of people in your community. I mean, I, I know you've gotten a lot of feedback from other people saying, yeah, that's ex- similar to how you went with your first book, Mom's Cancer. Yeah, I did. And that's been, um, it's been interesting too, because that's sort of, that's a sort of thing that goes both ways. And I wonder if maybe there's any analogy there that we could stretch to beyond its breaking point to talk about how, you know, the, you were talking about the pressure of the press and the, the people camped out in your lawn and, and, um, it, that's, that's pressure, but it's also an opportunity to tell your side of the story. And that's what I did with my comic is I had a chance to tell my side of, what had happened to our community? What had happened when? What happens to a community when you, when sixty-two hundred homes are burned in one night? That's that's what I'm writing about. That's what I'm talking about. So I put it out in the world, but then the world gives it back to me too. You know, the world gives me kind of the support and, and structure and encouragement that really helps me feel like, you know, first of all, this is this is a story worth telling, but second of all, that that it's good for people to hear, and it's. Um, you know, it, it, it strengthens my resolve to, to, to rebuild and uh, try to help people and so forth. So, you know, I guess we're all connected, right? Um, and, and the stress and pressure and so forth that these folks felt had its, had its flip side, which is they also got the support of the world when bad things happened. It, I mean, it is, it, it is something that a, uh, a disaster shared is less of a disaster. I mean, you feel 
I, you don't feel alone. I mean, I think, I think one of the worst things in a disaster is the isolation that there is, you know, there, there is no relation, but in uh, a lot of other, you know, in, in, when you, when you have the opportunity to say, well, in my experience, this is how I dealt with this or that. Um, I know I felt that with, uh, with, when I read your first book, Mom's Cancer, um, which is about your mother dealing with uh, stage four metastatic, metastatic, static lung cancer. Um, but, uh, my my dad had uh, had a similar uh cancer he had mesothelioma and uh read in reading your book i found a lot of uh elements in my life from your book and feeling that you had been you had been through a similar uh road um i felt a little bit better about the stuff that i was going through saying that this is the reactions that i'm having are normal this is something that uh-huh. It doesn't feel, you know, I'm not, I'm not handling this the, you know, quote unquote wrong way. Um, and that was a, that was a great help for me, uh, during the time that my dad was going through, uh, his, uh, mesothelioma treatments. Um, and I think, I, I think that your, you know, your, your other story, the fire story, uh, is having a similar, uh, responses. Well, I appreciate that, Jim. Thanks. Um, I hope so. I, I'd like to think so. Thanks. Well, I also think that it's, it's a good feeling when you're, going through something horrific, be it, you know, a sick loved one or uh, losing your house in a fire that when you feel like you're not alone, there's people that are there to help you. It doesn't seem so hopeless. Um, You know, it's probably cliched, I guess, but uh, I always like the Mr. Rogers quote that if you ever need to look for good in the world, just look for uh, a bad event, but then look for the people that are helping. And then, you know, you know that there's, there's good out there. And, uh, you know, I, I just think that it, it makes you feel like you're not alone when you feel, you have something to turn to and you escape to, and um, you know you know that there's people there to kind of have your back. Yeah, one really interesting thing I've noticed is I, I I'm currently expanding the Fire Story comic I put online into a, a book that will be published next uh, year, and um, I'm interviewing people as part of that process. And what I'm finding is that a lot of times the people who've lost the most are also turning around and helping the most. And when you ask them about that, they almost all say, well, a lot of people have it worse than I do. And, you know, you just lost everything. You literally lost everything you have, and and yet you're saying, you know, people who have it worse. And um, that's just a, that's a real nice part of the human experience. You know, that that tells you something good about people when, when, they can say that and mean it and act upon it. You know, we're some. I don't know if all people are, are have good in them, but uh, you know, a lot of people have a lot of good in them. And in a situation like that, it comes out. Yeah, I mean, it, it is nice to know that even in the most dire circumstances, people can, you know, find a light at the end of the tunnel. That yeah. uh, that there's an, another way to repurpose your life. But I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, to your expanded book, the original. Uh, online story. It, it, it's still available online, I believe, isn't it? Yes, right? absolutely. Yeah. Um, easy, easily Googled. Oh, okay, well, yes, I strongly recommend. Please uh, check out Brian's uh, uh, Brian's story, A Fire Story. And sometime, I guess, toward the end of the year, you'll be coming soon, hopefully. The uh, book? The book, yes. Um, next spring. Next spring, okay. Well, Yeah, I'm keep, working on it now. Stay tuned. <laughs> Even people will be listening to this and thinking somewhere, this, this is, oh, it's almost here. So, uh, <laughs> Well, uh, check out check out Brian's uh, other other books online uh, at always available at Amazon.com. Just uh, just look for uh, Brian Fees uh, F I E S, 
and uh, they'll be happy to sell you many of his uh, his previous works. So I, I checked it out. Please uh, join us here tomorrow. We're going to continue this uh, discussion about Marilyn Lovell's uh, fever dream here. And uh, we'll finish out the week uh, here on the Apollo 13 Minute. Uh, if you haven't already been there, please go to iTunes or to Google Play. If you're on iTunes, subscribe uh, under app, uh, Apollo 13 Minute. And please leave us a good review because the more people, the more times you leave good reviews, the more people can find us and uh, join in our discussion. If you'd like to join us online, we're always available uh, 24-7 at Apollo 13 Minute, Apollo13Minute.com. And uh, you can find us on Twitter at Apollo 13 Minute and on Facebook, Apollo 13 Minutes Mission Control. Uh, join us here tomorrow as we finish out the week. Uh, and it looks like I lost a signal in about 30 seconds. So we'll catch you on the other side here on the Apollo 13 Minute.